You'll find it helpful to have that passage open in front of you in, in Hebrews 12. We're just going to be looking at the middle section from verses 12 uh, to 17. Some passages uh, are hard in the sense that they're hard to understand. You know, you get those passages where it just seems like you can't get your head around really what's uh, going on. There are some passages that are hard to apply, aren't they, when you read things about goats and milk and, and all that sort of thing. You sort of think, well, what does that mean for us in 21st century Britain? But this passage here in Hebrews 12 uh, is hard because it's addressed to people who are finding it hard. What the author says here and, and tells them to do is not an easy option. It's, it's difficult for people who are finding it hard. The pictures of a, a runner who is struggling in the race, the marathon race of faith that we were introduced to in verses 1 and 2. And it seems here in, in 12 to 17 that the runner is somehow injured. Perhaps they've experienced that fatherly discipline that we saw in verses 5 to 11. And they've just been finding it hard. They're feeling tired. They're feeling weak. Their legs are cramping up. Their hands are hanging limply down at their sides. And they've virtually come to a stop in the race. What are they to do? Well, when I read this at the beginning of the week, I've got to say it nearly crushed me as I read it. I know a lot of you know I've not been feeling so great uh, recently. And here are these uh, commands seemingly to lift up my hands, strengthen my knees. Which actually, when you're feeling things are hard feels like the hardest thing in the world to do, doesn't it? When I read it at the beginning of the week, it sounded to me like some military drill sergeant shouting down at some exhausted rookie, saying, get up, get marching, get those arms up, get those knees up. It seemed cruel and unfeeling, demanding what seemed impossible. I told Park Caroline partway through the week that I didn't think I could preach this this week. But after a particularly low point in the week, I realised that that's not what's happening here in this passage. I've ripped these commands out of context. In fact, they're not really commands, as he tells us to do these things. They're exhortations. They're encouragements. They're pleas to us. It's not a military sergeant standing up and shouting down. It's the coach alongside. It's the crowd in verses 1 and 2 calling us to do this. Come on, you can do this. It's our Lord Jesus pleading with us to get up, that we might make it to the end, that we might make it to the finish line. And the important thing here is the context in which he says it. These pleas don't come in a vacuum. Our passage starts with a therefore. Do you notice in verse 12, therefore lift up your drooping hands. And the next passage in verse 18 starts with a for. They're giving reasons for us to do this. They're giving reasons that we can do this. They're reasons to get back up and make it to the end. So this morning I want to share with you what Jesus tells us to do. Why he says that we can do that. And finally, how we go about doing that. So firstly, what? Well, the first thing he tells us is to get up. Have a look at verses 12 and 13. Therefore... Lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint 
but rather healed. He tells us three things really within that little short section. He tells us to lift up our drooping hands, strengthen our weak knees and make straight paths for our feet. And again that picture is of that marathon runner who's slowed down virtually to a stop. The arms that used to be going have now stopped pumping. The legs are cramping up and feeling unable to move. They're veering off from the track and falling into obstacles and barriers. And in response to that, the passage picks up two references, two verses from the Old Testament. They're virtually quotes, really, from the Old Testament to tell us what to do. The first is Isaiah 35. Now, you might find it helpful to have it uh, open in front of you. Isaiah 35. There's the, the verses there on the screen. <coughs> Sorry, the page numbers. I want to read you the whole thing so you get the context, really, of what's going on. It sounds harsh, doesn't it, as we read it in Hebrews? But listen to it in Isaiah. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God comes. Uh, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You see, actually, in the original context that we read it, this is an encouragement. This is supposed to be a good thing. They are in exile in Babylon. But God is saying the exile will come to an end. God will return to them. And they shall return home. Home on a highway, if you like. None of the sort of windy roads that you get. It's not going up West Chevin Road, sort of trying to dodge things. It's a highway. It's like a motorway. And they shall come to Mount Zion with singing and rejoicing. So why are they to lift up their hands and strengthen their knees? It's for the journey back home. It's for them to walk on that highway. He's saying there's no longer any need for you to fear. There's no longer any need for you to cower down on the floor. God is returning to you. So you can hold your head up high. You can strengthen your legs, you can lift up your arms, and you can walk home. 
The end is coming, this wonderful picture of joy, everlasting joy for the redeemed. So what about the readers? Well, Jesus is pleading with them, don't stay down. Don't give up. You can do this. You can get going. Your arms and your legs can get moving again. You can make your way home. But it's not just about moving. It's not just getting going. Actually, it matters where you're going. Now, the second quote there uh, in verse 13 is virtually a quote, or it really is a quote, from the Greek version of Proverbs 4. I put that on the back of your notice sheet uh, from the Greek translation. Obviously, it's in English. Don't worry, I'm not giving you Greek. But it's the translation of the Greek. It says, make straight tracks for your feet and strengthen your, straighten your ways. When you understand it like that, the picture is of getting back on track. Getting back on the right road. So it's not just about moving, but being in the right place. That main road is that highway of holiness. Not one covered in obstacles and things that knock us down, the things that weigh us down from verses 1 and 2. It's a bit like golf. Now, I have never played around. I've played mini golf. I've never played a round of golf. But it's, it's like trying to get out of the rough onto the fairway. At least I understand that, that much. You know, the fairway is the best place to be, isn't it? It's the easiest place to play golf from. You don't want to stay in the rough. You want to be on the fairway. So Jesus is pleading with them not just to move, but to find a straight path. Don't just get moving, but get moving in the right direction. More of that in a moment. But why do we find this so hard? Well, I think we find it hard because... When we talk about getting moving, when we're feeling that, that lethargy, that, that pain in our arms and legs. It's because it's easier to stay down, isn't it? It's easier to stay where we are. But Jesus is pleading with us not to. Look at the second half of verse 13. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. We may feel like our arms and legs are are lame, are lethargic. But if we don't do something with them, they'll end up out of joint. They'll end up worse than they are now. The word that's used there for out of joint is the word that's used elsewhere for those who turn away from the gospel. It's the idea of your arms turning out of, of joint. He doesn't want that to happen. Actually, he longs to heal us. He longs to get us back on track. So this is a plea for us not to end up out of joint, but to press on with the race, to get up. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just tell us um, to get up. He tells us as well to get going. Have a look at verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The word there that's translated strive means pursue means to chase after, means to to follow after something. So as we get running, as we do get going, he's giving us the direction to go. He's given us what to chase after. We're to follow after two things, peace and holiness. Peace with everyone. That sounds a bit of a strange place to start, doesn't it, when you talk about getting back on track? And we'll understand it a bit more as we look at that phrase, peace comes up again and again in chapter 13. But peace with others can really go when we fall off the track, can't it? When we start to just care about ourselves, other people can get hurt. 
So part of what we're to do is pursue peace with others, which involves thinking about others, involves helping others. The second thing we're to pursue is holiness, which without which it says we won't see the Lord. Again, that's echoing the Isaiah passage where we'll see the glory of the Lord. He's saying that holiness, it can be ditched sometimes, can't it, when we find it hard? We can fall into sin that we wouldn't have done when we're finding things a bit easier. And if we're to look to Jesus in our race, there in verse 2, do you remember? Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Then actually we cannot afford to muddy our our view with sin. Sin is like a fog that hides the saviour, hides the way before us that we're to go. And we can't run, can we, if we don't know the way. So he's saying pursue holiness. And this is hard, isn't it? Because again, when you're stuck in a rut, it's easier not to strive. Pursuing is something active, isn't it, that we have to do. It's not easy to go looking for peace with everyone. To look at what is good for... um, It's easier to look at just what is good for us and ignore what anyone else wants. It's easier not to go for holiness. We know that every time we sin. But this is what we must pursue. This is the direction that we go. These are the things that will keep us on track. It's a bit like, um, I don't know if you've ever been greyhound racing. Not obviously on the greyhound, but watching uh, greyhound racing. My dad was really into it, so we went as a child for a long, long time. The greyhounds, they chase after this hare. It's not a real hare, it's just this sort of thing attached to a, uh, a sort of motor that runs around the track. And they chase after it. And it's to keep them going. It's to keep them sort of chasing after what's in front. And they're things that they'll never get. Now, I once did see it where it broke down and all the greyhounds sort of dived on this hair. <laughs> but for the most part, they never catch it. But it's off in the distance. It's, it's something that we're to, to chase after, if you like. To pursue. So holiness and peace with everyone in this life, we will not achieve those things. The dog never catches the hair. But we're to go on pursuing peace and holiness. It gives us that point in the distance to aim towards, to keep us on the right track as we're following the Lord Jesus. So that is what we're to do. Get up and get going. But why? How can he tell us to do these things? If it is hard for us, if it is difficult, what encouragement is there to do these things? How can Jesus tell us to get up and get going? Well, that brings us to our our second uh, point. Why? There are two key words in our passage, as I said before. Therefore and for. And they explain why he can say these things. So I don't just want to give you bare commands and say, right, get up and get going. Because that's not what our passage does. Actually, he gives us massively important truths that will help us get up and get going. They're in the, the bits surrounding it. But the first one. It's a reminder that we are sons of God. Let me read you verses 5 and 6 again. Or have you forgotten the exaltation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He's just reminded us in the passage before that we are sons of God. That we're heirs, if you like. We're in the family. Things may have been hard for the the readers and for us. 
But he's just told us that that's because God is treating us as sons, not as enemies. He's not asking us to stand up to be knocked down again. He's saying, get up. You're a son loved by the father. You've not been knocked down because you're an enemy. You've been trained like a son. So what have you to fear? God has not abandoned you in your hard time. Far from it. Actually, that hard time, in a way, is proof that he's adopted you. That you're in his family. So please, get up and carry on as a son. The second thing that he tells us to encourage us is there in verse 10. God is working all things for our good. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. The discipline he refers to in verse 10 there is for our good. So God is not out to harm us. God is out to heal us. He is out to train us, to mould us, to help us. So even our wounding is for our good. And if our wounding is for our good, then what have we to fear? If even the bad things that happen to us, God is using for our good. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. If God is for us, then who can be against us? So please get up and carry on. The harm that you've had wasn't supposed to destroy you, but to refine you and working for your good. So those are the things that he tells us before the passage, the the therefore bits. But there are two important bits afterwards as well. Why he can plead with them to keep going. The next one is that we haven't come to Mount Sinai. Now we'll look at this a bit more next week, but we'll just touch on it now. Verses 18 uh, to uh, 21. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is why I don't think we can read this as terrifying commandments to us that are supposed to scare us. Because actually, that's not the mountain we've come to. We've not come to Mount Sinai with those terrifying commandments. We haven't come to a voice that will cause us to cover up our ears and ask that God speak no longer. We haven't come to a mountain that threatens to fall on us and crush us, as Paul Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress feels as he comes to this mountain. Actually, only there he finds Mr. Legalist, who could only give him commands that could kill. We haven't come there. And that's why I don't think we can see this as God shouting at us, but as that coach cheering us on, get up, carry on. Where have we come to? Well, we've come to Mount Zion. Have a look at verses 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word 
than the blood of Abel. He's saying here we've come to a completely different species of mountain. One that doesn't speak of judgment like Abel's blood, but forgiveness. One that doesn't sell their birthright as firstborn, but is an assembly of the firstborn. Not the earthly Jerusalem that can only offer pictures of the heavenly things, but those things themselves in the heavenly Jerusalem. Again, much more of this next week. But this is a privilege that we enjoy now by faith. And one day we will enjoy by sight. There is a hope. There is something to hope for. And we have it now by faith. There's a celestial city before us if we will just keep going and get there. It's not far. And we're already there in one sense. So we can make it. We can get there. We can get up and get going to that wonderful picture that stands before us. So there's the encouragement there. But all that still doesn't answer one last question, which is how. I should say there are two brief points and one longer sort of points in this. How do we do this? How do we actually get going and stand up and get moving? Well, the first one is that we do it in his strength. We do it in his strength. We do not do it in our own strength. If we make this into commandments that we must keep in our own strength, then we will fail. We return ourselves to Mount Sinai rather than to Mount Zion, don't we? Imposing on ourselves more laws that we cannot keep. But that should give you hope this morning if you're feeling powerless and weak. If you're feeling that you haven't got the strength to stand. Because it's not in our own strength. It's not in our own power. And God always has strength. And whenever he asks us to do something, he gives us what we need to do it. So we do it in his strength, trusting in him, not in ourselves, not in our own ability to get up. Secondly, we do it in his timing. Who knows how long the Hebrews had drifted for before the time came for them to return. Well, now was the time for them to return. The prompting for them was this letter sent to them by the author of Hebrews, but really sent to them by God. They had drifted, but now God was pleading with them through this letter to keep going. Could it be that the time this morning, that's the time for us this morning, as we read this letter? Could it be that God is pleading with you this morning and asking you to get up and get back on track today? It's God's timing, but he works through his word. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's been the message all the way through Hebrews. Return to him in his timing. But could it be that this morning is his timing? And then lastly, we do it together. The lifting of the hands and the strengthening of the knees. Did you notice that in the Isaiah passage, they were things that you had to do to each other? It doesn't say strengthen your knees. It says strengthen the knees. They're to speak to one another, words of encouragement. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. It's not saying that they must each do it individually for themselves. It's saying you do this as a group. Get everybody ready. Prepare yourselves for God to come. The lifted hand, you can almost picture as that hand that goes up, you know, when you can't go off the sofa. 
<laughs> and you sort of put your hand up and somebody gives you that hand or you can't get off the floor. Lift up your hand for someone else to help you. And on top of that, there's the whole of that last section, isn't there? Verses 15 to 17, the final plea to his people. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This last section is... It's quite easy to misunderstand, really. It's not saying, don't fail to obtain grace. It's not saying, don't be bitter. And it's not saying, don't be unholy or sexually immoral. Actually, the command, the plea in this verse, is there in verse 15. See to it that. And that word, other translations have it this way. Look, looking with care to see that. Or look after each other so that. Or watch carefully so that. And you better with lights. There we go. Um, It's been happening all morning, so I I don't know what's going on, but we'll carry on. Um, The word there, the the C to it, that is the word episcopio. It's where we get our word bishop from, actually, in English. It means to give oversight. It means to watch over, to oversee one another so the only other time it's used in that way is that idea it's something that's given to elders to oversee the flock so what it's saying in these verses that we're to oversee one another that these things don't happen we have a ministry not just to look out for ourselves but for others for the people who are sat on the road with you or the people who are sat in front of you behind you The thing is, though, when you're feeling lame and weary, it's easier just to focus on yourself, isn't it? But the author is saying, no, you need to do this together. You need to look out for one another, look after one another. This is a community project that's getting back on track. We're to care for one another in the race. What is it that we need to watch over about each other? Well, really, it's it's three pictures of the same thing. We're to watch out that we don't end up giving up on the race. There's there someone failing to obtain grace in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. It echoes words earlier on in Hebrews about giving in. The Israelites who failed to enter into the, uh, the promised land. And the second picture is exactly that. The Israelites in the wilderness. Do you see that? Um, so see to it then skip halfway through the verse, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. By it, many become defiled. Actually, it's a quote there, that root of bitterness. It's from Deuteronomy 29, which again, I put on the back of your notice sheets. Deuteronomy 29, 18 to 20. Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poison, poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the word of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away 
uh, of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Serious stuff, isn't it? The root of bitterness there that will defile them is the one who hears the word, but stubbornly continues in sin. Who believes that they're safe, even though that their life has never been transformed by the gospel. In other words, the thing we're to watch out with for each other, the bitter root that we're to see is fakery. A spirit that says, I can say I believe in the gospel, but continue to do what I like. That spirit will kill a congregation. It laid the Israelites dead in the wilderness as their promise uh, to be God's people didn't work out, did it? They didn't, uh, they continued to deliberately live as though they weren't God's people. He's saying, look out for one another that you don't end up going down that track. The third picture is Esau. Let me read you 16 and 17 again. So see to it that, oversee that. No one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. If you don't know who Esau is, Esau was Jacob's brother, who sold Jacob his rights as firstborn son for a bowl of soup. He had his firstborn blessing from his father stolen from him by Jacob, And his father made it very clear that he couldn't get it back. Now here he's called unholy and sexually immoral. Immoral probably because he married two women, both of whom were outside God's people. And he upset his parents by doing so. They they really didn't like this. His greed and lack of concern for the things of God led him to throw away something that he couldn't get back. Esau cried when his blessing was taken But no amount of tears could get it back. He found no chance for repentance. He seemingly continued to be unholy and sexually immoral the whole of his life. He may have cried, but he never changed. He cried over his loss of his blessing, but we never see him crying over his sin. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't end up like him. Don't throw away something that you might not get back. It's like the opposite of that Jim Elliot quote, isn't it? A fool is he who gains what he cannot keep to lose what he cannot regain. Esau gave up everything for a bowl of soup and two godless women. And it's as if he's pointing to us and saying, will you give up your faith for less? What will it take? We're to look out for one another so that that doesn't happen. So we're responsible for one another that we don't give in. Do you know how each other are doing in the race? Do you know if there are people who are feeling lame and weak? Now that might be our fault for not asking. But it also might be our fault for not telling. We need to care for one another as we do this, as we get back on track. And that can be hard, can't it, when many of us are injured or struggling. Or you can look at it the other way and think, well, actually, isn't that a blessing in a way? If so many of us are injured and struggling, then we've got others who are with us on the journey, haven't we? Who can do this alongside us. 
See, the Christian life isn't supposed to be a a series of victories after victories. There are times when we will feel lame and we'll feel like we're going backwards. And I'm not just saying that it's true. I'm not just saying that is how it happens. But how we respond to that will make all the difference. So will we get back up this morning with the help of others and get back on the right track? Or will we stay where we are, struggling in silence, slowly falling further and further behind? Getting back going is hard, but in God's strength, we can do it. He's given us encouragement to know that we can do it. And if you're feeling great and hunky-dory this morning, why don't you be thinking, who could you help in the race? Who could you help who's struggling? I just want to finish with some words with a hymn by John Newton. I've been reading quite a bit of, of him recently. I found him really encouraging. This is a hymn I've not, not come across before, but it's called Perseverance. And it says this. Rejoice, believer, in the Lord, who makes your cause his own. The hope that's built upon the word can ne'er be overthrown. Though many foes beset your road and feeble is your arm, your life is hid with Christ in God beyond the reach of harm. Weak as you are, you shall not faint or fainting shall not die. Jesus, the strength of every saint, will aid you from on high. Though sometimes unperceived by sense, faith sees him always near, a guide, a glory, a defense. Then what have you to fear? As surely as he overcame and triumphed once for you, so surely you that love his name shall triumph in him too. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that we are weak. Father, we confess that, uh, Father, we are beset by things that uh, stop us in the race. Father, we're weighed down. And Father, we can feel tired and weary. (coughs) Father, we pray this morning, provide the strength that we need, Father, to get back up and get going and get running. Father, help us to know that you are with us, alongside us in the race. Father, not barking commands at us, but Father, you are there encouraging us, longing to heal us, longing to see us cross that finish line. So Father, give us the strength we need for ourselves, give us the strength that we need for each other. As we help one another on the, on the road, on the race. Father, help us to be those who oversee one another. Father, not in a vindictive way. Father, not in a shouty way either. But in a way that can encourage uh, us to keep going. That, Father, we all might make it to the end. And enjoy that glorious future we were reading about. As we reach Mount Zion by sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.